Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Okay, let me begin. Uh, my name is Vladislav Zubok, um, Professor of uh, International History at the London School of Economics. And it's a great pleasure and honor for me to open this event to introduce my colleague and my colleague's book, uh, Tomila Lankina's uh, book, uh, uh, The uh, Origins of uh, Russian Democracy, The State's Origins of Russian Democracy. And uh, uh, let me just say a few words about Tomila herself, because uh, I uh, met her a few years uh, ago uh, and uh, discovered her to be an invaluable colleague, a, a, a ball of international, interna intellectual energy and uh, a great public scholar and activist and everything that concerned me also concerned her. It was a rare meetings of uh, hearts and minds, I should say. Tamila, uh, Professor Lankina, uh, is, is a well-educated person. She's professor of international relations with broad background that uh, uh, combines many countries, but above all her uh, home country, Russia. She had a BA in linguistics in Urdu and Hindi uh, from the Tashkent Institute of Oriental Studies in Uzbekistan. Then uh, she moved to the United States to Boston, where he, she got an MA in international relations from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Then she moved to the UK um, and received her PhD from the University of Oxford in St. Anthony and Balliol Colleges. So she held uh, later on many research appointments, including the ones at the Humboldt University in Berlin, Stanford University, and the Wilson, uh, Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. Uh, those places I also remember very fondly. She has been a co-investigator and lead investigator on S ESRC and British Academy. Her latest book that we, she will present to us today is called The State Origins of Democracy in Russia, From Imperial Bourgeoisie to Post-Communist Middle Class, published by Cambridge University Press this year. I would like to say a few words about this book, if you allow me, before uh, uh, letting Professor Lankina speak. I think these 500-something pages are very important. First of all, because they kind of bridging at the same time book ending the enormous period of history that we know and teach as Soviet history. And this so-called Soviet period connects the pre-revolutionary Russia and the post-revolutionary Russia, and of course, Putin's Russia today. Various attempts were made to bridge this huge gap with variable degree of success. But I think this book is a particular success in the sense that it takes a completely innovative approach, both sociological and humanistic, to the problem that many historians struggled with uh, for, for decades. 
this work has a certain degree of timeliness to me as well, because it is about human resilience. It's about the role of families in what can be scientifically put reproduction of cultural and so social values. Maybe just human beings, maybe just ourselves. This book has international implications as one may expect from someone who's professor of international relations. I should say I began to read this book with some hesitation because I read many, many uh, um, uh, books and articles by people in IR. And of course I knew Tomila's previous work. Um, I was surprised how, how much history, how much depth, how much nuance, uh, cultural, social, and intellectual one can find in this book. I'm very pleased that in Tomila is not just, uh, not just my colleague at the LSE. She could be easily my colleague at the International History Department as well. So when I read in her conclusion that human capital in Russia gives us a, you know, the history of this human capital under the Bolsheviks, under Stalin, after Stalin, during those excruciating decades of social experimentation meant to level, meant to destroy human capital in every conceivable way. That we can learn from this story. It's not a, a, an outlier in world history, but the same story we can find, a similar story we can find in transition of any pre-modern country to modern country, minus, of course, the ferocity of this leveling experiment that we call Soviet or communist. Finally, and I really want to emphasize it, this is a highly optimistic book. This is a book of love for Russia because we have two trends in, in, in scholarship. We have two trends in historiography. Too many scholars who try to study Russia, try to uh, approach it from, the, from what another historian, uh, Stephen Kotkin, calls a uh, Pygmalion approach. That is, the West comes to Russia, finds an uncouth beauty, tries to educate her, tries to make her Western without really understanding what what is cultural background, what is historical background, sense of pride, sense of national belonging in that country. And very quickly, these people who try to take this Pygmalion approach drop this approach when they don't receive reciprocity, when they fail to achieve immediate results. And these people swing back immediately to an image of a an eternal Russia, Russia that is hopeless, rather Russia that is incapable of taking a path towards democracy, liberalization, human individualism, human rights, and so on and so forth. Tomila is not one of these scholars, quite the opposite. Her book is a glimmer of hope in current darkness. In fact, when I read her book, I could not help thinking of another book, a great novel by Alexander Chudakov, incidentally called after the line from a great poet, Alexander Bloch, great, great Russian poet, Alexander Bloch, darkness descends on the old staircase. Just as we speak, Vladimir Putin 
steers Russia into this kind of darkness, even darker than we could imagine. It is the period when, you know, the Russian ruler declared any anti-war mindset, any, any hope for more free, for more in individualistic and respectful mind frame in Russia to be just a product of the West, a fifth column at the service of the West. And of course, he does it in the name of some ridiculous sovereignty that Russia, of course, always had and has. So to quote from Professor Lankina in her concluding lines of her book, a country that has an intergenerationally resilient, educated, professional bourgeoisie that survives 20th century's most brutal leveling dictatorships may have the seeds of democratic promise, particularly important towards today at these darkest, possibly darkest of all dark hours that Russia went to. So this is the book for me of precise Western scholarship, the book of Russian tragedy, the book of universalist and deeply moral optimism. And that affected me personally in a powerful way. And I hope those who listen to us will read this book. With this, I will turn uh, the floor to Professor Lankina. Thank you. Thank you very much for a very generous introduction. And I don't think anybody could have put it, uh, sort of summarized what I was trying to say uh, better. Um, and before, before I um, start my presentation, I believe we have a video um, that will be shown. So I'll let the technicians, I'll, I'll let the assistants uh, play the video first. It's only a five minute introduction to my book and then I'll take over. When we hear Russian Revolution, we think about destruction, decimation, obliteration. We don't think in terms of continuities, reproduction, and resilience. When I found an archive about a large merchant family on the Volga, their lives, and then what happened to them after the revolution, that was just mind-boggling. It completely changes how we look at the communist experience. In Stalin's Russia, so many members of the old bourgeoisie were hounded, persecuted. They could lose their lives just for being quote-unquote bourgeoisie in the Marxist scheme of things. People were afraid to keep records because they could lose their lives for simply being on the wrong side of the revolution. And they destroyed records. There's absolutely no paperwork. The only reason why this archive was preserved is because people who stayed in Russia in the 1920s and 1930s were sending to the part of the family who emigrated to America. That's why this archive is amazing because it gives us the rich texture and the context of how people survive. The Niklutin archive has all sorts of really interesting snippets, a vast trove of photographs, letters that are full of agony and at the same time full of a spirit of life, marriages, births, deaths, 
betrothals, family gossip, and reading more, you know, there are receipts, remittances, packages that were sent at the height of Stalinism. Of course, even within that family, there were people who were sent to the gulag, there were people who were executed. But my book calls attention to the values that these people preserved and how it would be erroneous for us to call these people Soviet people. This is an, an untold story. This is an untold story about the Russian middle class. We all know about the czars. We all know about the collectivized peasantry. We know about repressions in the gulags. We know almost nothing about merchants, Mishani, clergy. We think they simply disappeared. But one insight from my book is people don't simply disappear. Imperial Russian society was rigidly stratified into estates. The system survived all the way until 1917. It was so rigid and so densely permeated all aspects of social life that it has been likened to the caste system in India. So it divided society into peasants at the very bottom, the vast majority of the population. Then there were at the very top, the hereditary aristocracy and the personal nobles. Then there were clergy, and then there were the urban groups, which we know very little about. We know about the merchants, but the other group were these mysterious Mishani. And actually, after peasants, they were the largest group. But they have been completely airbrushed out of uh, historical works, political science works. Few people have written about estates, because this is just like the czars and their palaces and the Romanovs. This is one of those things that people say, well, it's been destroyed. And my analysis completely debunks that because they didn't disappear. And when the Bolsheviks came to power and they had to fulfill their fantastical proclamations about building a new society, industrializing the country, elevating it out of the depths of illiteracy and poverty, guess who they had to work with? They very quickly realized that they needed teachers, they needed doctors. And where did these people come from? These were the clergy, the Mishani, the merchants, and the nobles. And that's why I identify them as the core of the imperial bourgeoisie, but also the Soviet middle class. My book is a cautionary tale that shows us that even in the greatest leveling experiments of the 20th century, the structures of inequalities are extremely resilient because people transmit values within families. You can take away somebody's palace or make them pay more taxes. You cannot take away their human capital, their knowledge, their values. You cannot simply take it away from one person and give it to another one. And this is the crux of what I'm finding. This is not something that policymakers would like to hear because it precludes easy and facile solutions to dealing with inequality. Thank you. So I will now share um, 
the screen and hopefully I can go ahead. Can you all see the, the first slide? Legislative? Yes, we can. Thank you. Um, so thank you very much for, for tuning in tonight. I know it's a, a, a very busy time for uh, a lot of us, especially those of us who are following the Ukraine um, events, uh, war, and, and very much kind of involved in, in all of this emotionally, intellectually, and in many different ways. I'm very grateful for such a large audience. So let me begin by uh, highlighting and bringing a attention once again to this magnificent image which you've already seen on the video that was one, uh, shown already. This is a, a photograph from a merchant family archive, a widow with her seven children uh, from the Volga region of Samara. When we see images like this, we think about, we think of this sort of bygone era and something out of our great grandmothers or grandmothers closet. We don't think about this sort of society as something that survived and had a resilience through the brutal communist period and beyond, of course. And we don't think about the significance that this past society might have for us in terms of making sense of social divisions and social processes and political outcomes in Russia now. So what I'm going to say in, in, the, in the next few minutes in my talk um, might be a little bit controversial, not least because we, we do not like to think about Russian society in terms that have become unfashionable, in terms of sort of cultural values and, and their reproduction as relating to political outcomes. But that's not the story I'm saying. The story I'm going to be talking about is ultimately a story of inequality. And if you look at these two images, on one, you see the kind of cheerleaders for, for the Putin regime now. And on another, those of you who are familiar with the Russian media landscape, this is an image of the last day of TV reign, a liberal television news channel that closed uh, just very recently after the war in Ukraine began in the context of draconian legislation that was imposed on, on the media. So we have this divided society in Russia and it's playing out in very important ways um, now every day as we watch either brave people who are protesting or indeed those who are cheerleading for the regime. And few of us think about these social divisions with reference to the czarist society because it's simply become very unfashionable. But ultimately, my story is about the kind of reproduction of social structures that impinge on these outcomes now. And I wanted to draw your attention to a quote from a prominent liberal politician uh, who was very prominent in the kind of pre-revolutionary Russian political uh, landscape, Piotr Struve, and he talked about the fact that Russian society before the revolution was one where pretty much everybody lacked, lacked, lacked political rights, rich or poor, privileged or not. But some people had civil rights and other people didn't. So it was it's a story about different sets of rights that translated into different human capital endowments, property ownership, and the possibility for groups uh, to advance socially. The 
analysis that I performed for this book, we, I won't be able to encapsulate in this short talk. So I very much urge you to read the book if you're still skeptical about some of the causal mechanisms I'm talking about. And indeed a paper I co-authored with Alexander Liebman that was published last year in the American Political Science Review, where in, in great detail we discuss the data and provide very um, robust data analysis that shows these processes of intertemporal and inter generational um, resilience of social uh, structure. I've also written blogs um, and uh, I have a website that you can uh, access and, and read more about uh, the work that kind of underpins this analysis. So if I'm saying that there is a kind of continuity, but we don't think about it in terms of, uh, you know, this um, the, the connection between three epochs, czarist period, communist and post-communist uh, now. Uh, why did we get things so badly wrong? And I, I put it to three sets of um, reasons. One is, of course, the Soviet propaganda machine, as you see on one of the images on the bottom slide, that led us to believe that communism was a whole new dawn. It was a revolutionary new era that put an end to the old so-called backward society of the czars. The second reason were uh, progressive intellectuals like not least the co-founders of my August institution, my employer LSE, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, who were uh, Fabian socialists, and they embraced the sort of the new progressive agenda of the communist regime. They came to a Soviet Union in the 1930s. They were shown around by, by, uh, by the Stalin regime, and they came back and wrote uh, very sort of um, very positive accounts of what they found. And again, this was very much a narrative of a new social beginning and a whole new dawn. And they published a book uh, called Is Soviet Communism a New Civilization? The first edition came up with a question mark. Subsequent editions did not have a question mark. It was in the affirmative. So this is the kind of stuff that shaped our understanding of the communist experience. And most recently, we have books about inequality that also talk about the 20th century uh, communist ex experiments, as indeed wars uh, that are accompanied by massive violence and dislocation in terms of the great leveler paradigm. So we think of the 20th century brutal episodes of war revolution as great levelers because these accounts are largely couched in economic terms, right? We know a lot about the centiles and the deciles, those of us who have read Thomas Piketty's work, we know about the income distribution and, and sort of social stratification in an economic sense. And so we think that leveling occurs when, um, when there is a kind of redistribution of economic assets. And my book, of course, debunks um, these, um, uh, these assumptions. And at the root of my account is the institution of estate in Russian Sassovia, which rigidly divided imperial society into um, estates, which, um, which could be presented in the form of a pyramid. At the very top were the nobles, um, hereditary aristocracy and personal nobles, that is people could become ennobled because of service or other achievements, service to the state. Then there were the 
clergy, which also formed a very small percentage of the population. And, and that was uh, also hereditary. You were born into the state of clergy. And then there were urban groups. Um, merchants were the wealthiest of these urban um, estate uh, groups, and the, but they also formed a tiny percentage of the population. But the largest after peasant was were the urban estate of Mishani. And that's a very mysterious estate, which I conceptualize as the kind of proto-bourgeoisie or the bulk of the imperial bourgeoisie because they were property owners. They had certain burger rights as indeed, of course, the nobles and the clergy. And these rights were very different from those of the peasants. Peasants uh, which formed a vast majority and mass of imperial Russian population were very, very underprivileged compared to these other groups, which formed a very small slice of the population. And whilst one could transition from the state of peasant, especially after emancipation in the 1860s, one could transition into these urban estates. The process was very slow and gradual of acquisition of sort of the urbane values, uh, qualities, human capital, right? That we associate with kind of urban bourgeoisie and the bourgeois state. And that was of course very different from, if you look at the scene here, it is probably from the 1930s when peasants were fleeing collectivization um, in and entering cities and, and in large numbers. It was a, not the kind of slow and gradual transition that we associate with the development of the bourgeoisie in imperial uh, period. But my story is not, not only about social stratification and, and inequalities, it's also a story about the particular ability to participate in public life and rights and resources that one had. And that was very important because contrary to widespread myths and misrepresentations of imperial society, Tsarist Russia had a very vibrant civil and public sphere. And, and um, that public sphere, which I encapsulate in, in this graph, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit in a moment, was, however, largely limited to these privileged estates of aristocracy, merchants, to a less extent, Mishani as well, and clergy. These were kind of groups that were entering the modern professional class, and they were extremely well networked. Uh, they were um, they were running different uh, professional associations. They were running and founding um, charities, schools, uh, gymnasia, which were elite secondary schools. And when we think about the Bolshevik Revolution as having a destructive effect on uh, Russian imperial society, we 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 think about this bit in the in the top of the triangle, right? If you look at the very top, these are the institutions that were decimated, the crown, governors in, in regions, you know, police force and other coercive institutions. We don't think about the public sphere that kind of reproduced itself even after the revolution because schools and professional organizations and the professions, they were not so much touched by this kind of Moloch uh, and whirlwind of, of the Bolshevik uh, revolution. But as I mentioned already, it was a very, heavily inequitable public sphere because it was dominated by aristocrats, merchants, these urban groups who had not just the resources to engage in kind of civic 
activism, but also the human capital. These were the educated groups. And one other way of demonstrating how connected they were is the social network analysis I did based on um, an entire slice, virtually entire slice of white collar uh, groups in one city on the Volga, Samara city. So there were like directories akin to yellow pages at the time before the revolution. And I have the year of 1916 here, just one year before the revolution to demonstrate the the, the connectedness between these different groups. And what we see is, uh, if we look at the kind of pink um, areas here at the top, you see there are little lines connecting it to other circles. And these different circles are different organizations. So the, 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 the pink circle is the uh, gymnasium run by a very progressive woman who was the, of noble uh, pedigree. And it was well connected to other areas of civic sphere in that city. But if you compare it to some of the other organizations like the police, there's an orange, should be an orange um, circle on the right or the management of Tashkent railways on the left. These are sort of circles not connected to other uh, areas of, of society in Samara. And so a lot of these, especially the police, these are the ones that were decimated after the revolution or you know, the, the individuals associated with them were repressed. But the you know, schools or professional associations, they did not uh, un undergo the same kind of decimation. Why is that important? It's important because connectedness make, makes people resilient. They, it provides them with resources and ability to resist um, attempts to change society. And these kind of relatively privileged group were extremely well connected and very well networked because they all engaged, they engaged in different civic uh, associations. Another way of gauging the reproduction uh, and resilience of, of the bourgeoisie is to look at some of the archival materials that were already presented in, in the video that, that you, you, you watched. It is an archive I came across very serendipitously uh, by talking to a woman in Samara who, was, who is now a civic activist. And she mentioned in passing that she comes from, um, a, um, a, a, she's a descendant of this Niklutin family of whom I had never heard anything. It turns out these are very prominent merchants in Samara who were intermarried with other merchants. And we have this archive because the, Constantine Niklutin emigrated to America, but more than 30 of his extended family, and these were very large family. Let's not forget that, you know, this is like the early 20th century. People, uh, you know, even arist aristocrats and merchants, they had many children, you know, 10, 11 children, eight, that was that, that was not unusual. So we have this vast family, some emigrated after the revolution, but others remained. And Constantine preserved every single piece of record or document related to the family who stayed behind. They were sending letters to America. He preserved all of those as indeed receipts of remittances that they, he, he transferred. So on, on the left, you see the photographs of Constantine and his wife, Paulia and son Vadim, who were um, took the, these photos were taken as they were preparing to immigrate to America. But I'm also highlighting the woman in the center of the image on the right. That's his mother, Anastasia. We'll come back to her uh, because she's the one who stayed in, in, in Samara. 
And we also have records of families of kind of lesser bourgeoisie. When I say lesser, I mean in the kind of wealth sense of the word, but they are no less important. How do we have these records? Because the current members of the middle class, and in, in the case of both of these families on this image, uh, they are the descendants of professoriate professors in Samara University, so very elite professions. So on the left is an image of the Mishani family of, of an individual who had uh, owned a hair salon. So this is the kind of wealth and kind of small business type of um, entrepreneurship that these families were habitually engaged in. And on the right is a veterinarian who I believe comes from the state of clergy. It was by the way, very typical of clergymen to become professionals joining veterinary professions or indeed medicine. And this is here, he, he is with a nuclear family. We have this image because his descendant who is now done doing a PhD, recently completed a PhD in aerospace engineering. So extremely elite, very well-educated man. He shared these images with me. So we have these, these, um, this new knowledge that was hidden in the Soviet times because people were afraid to share these records. We have this new knowledge. Uh, people are opening up their, their closets and we're learning about groups other than the aristocracy. I can't tell you how you know, sometimes I get a bit annoyed uh, at thinking, well, how many more BBC documentaries I can watch about the Roman and what happened to them? Why don't we see something about merchants, Mishani? Something, you know, more, more, more le less known and that we're less familiar with. So what are the routes to adaptation of these groups in Soviet Russia? And I identified three main routes. I'll start with the kind of photographic images. So the image on the very right is, is, is one of you, uh, Eugenie Leopoldovich Kavetsky. He was a medical professional of extremely high status. He founded medical clinics before the revolution. He died in 1939. He was a very decorated Soviet professional, as indeed were his sons, one of whom remained in Samara, but he, he, he was also elite medical professional in the Soviet period. And another one is um, uh, was in Ukraine, actually, in Kiev. So the Kavetsky family of medics in, 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 in Ukraine are very prominent. So these are the kinds of routes to professional mobility that we see, which is fairly straightforward for some of these professional groups. On the left, we see Vera, Vera Goimston, who is a very well-known figure among archeologists. Before the revolution, very prominent uh, woman who was uh, moved to Samara and was sort of running the archeological digs, etc. before and after the revolution, made a big mark. She was a Russified, comes from a Russified um, family of Swedish emigrants to, to St. Petersburg. And in the middle is, so these people, the Goldstein and Kavetsky, they have Wikipedia pages and lots of accolades, but there are sort of nameless people that do not have those uh, pages, but we know of them because their descendants have talked about them. And these are people like this um, young lady, Olinka Konavalova, who in 1917 was just as old as the Bolshevik revolution. She was 17 and she had just finished an elite secondary school called gymnasium. She didn't leave a mark as a famous professional or artistic figure. 
She was the quintessential middle class. She had high human capital. She played the piano. She taught her children and grandchildren, you know, the values that she absorbed as a, as a sort of middle class woman of Mishani origin in imperial um, Russia. And her grandson is a professor, uh, was a pro you know decorated professor in in Samara. So when I say that. Um, that uh, we have to think about the, the human capital of these groups that differed from that of the large peasant population. I wanted to draw our attention to these statistics on, on the right for 1917 for different um, estates. So we see that at the time of the revolution, the nobility were 90% uh, literate. Clergy, 95% uh, of, of the clergy state were literate. The urban estate, which, which com comprised of merchants and Mishani and sort of honorary citizen groups, 64% were literate. And if you look at the peasant statistic highlighted in red, only 32% of peasants were literate. Um, but even the urban estates who lived in villages, so the so, so, uh, rural bourgeoisie uh, were far more literate than the, the peasants estate individuals who lived in the village. So 56% literacy versus 32% literacy. So it's not just a story of simple urban rural divide. It's a story of how different estates had different rights. There was rural bourgeoisie as well because the merchants in Mishani could actually pursue entrepreneurship, you know, own property, et cetera, more easily than because of a different institutional uh, institutional constraints and possibilities of the different estates. One could argue that these statistics are for 1917. Hasn't Russia moved on after the revolution? Well, one record we have is the so-called Stalin census of 1937. And this was, uh, as, as Professor Zubok would, would know, a, a, a census that, um, that left Soviet um, leaders so aghast that they quickly um, made it secret and pronounced it made the record secret, pronounced it defunct, and and then went on to produce a new census that kind of was more aligned with the reality that Stalin wanted to see of happening in Russia of a classless society that he proclaimed. Then the reality that was revealed in the kind of fairly accurate census of 1937. So in a way, it's similar to you know what we see now with Putin. There is a kind of alternative reality that these leaders who have lost touch, they want to live in. But what happens when they are faced with alternative reality, they fabricate the results. So what, Stalin, what did Stalin not like about that census? It revealed profound illiteracy of the Russian society, especially peasant society. Um, 33, almost 34% of all women um, over the age of nine were illiterate. And among women aged 40, 44 to 44, close to 50% 50, 50 were illiterate. Now, these are the women in that age group. You think they'd be like teachers and doctors, etc. But very large chunks of society remained illiterate. Only 4.3% of the entire population had completed high school. 
And that's 20 years after the revolution. And what is interesting, this census also preserved the old categories of imperial society. And one could also gauge uh, you know, what percentage of the population, for instance, were rentier or derived income from rent, that is sort of quasi-private entrepreneurship. It also showed that Protestants, which before the revolution, this religious group were highly literate and remained so even after the revolution. So this is not a story of change of society and leveling. This is a story of amazing persistence and reproduction. I promised I'll uh, talk a little bit about the three routes to uh, social persistence. And um, we saw some images of the Kavetsky medical dynasty, Vera Goldstein and Olinka Navalova on the previous slide. Um, and I wanted to illustrate and kind of give, assign labels to these three routes, which in my book I refer to as the organization man. Uh, or woman, of course, um, and on the right you see a kind of um, stylized chart uh, of a medical hierarchy. And what I find in my work is that these hierarchies within organizations uh, and within professions like medicine were fairly accurately reproducing the society of estates. So if before the revolution, the elite medical consultants like Kavetsky came from privileged groups, in Kavetsky's um, um, case, possibly noble, Polish noble, uh, you know, then, then there were nurses who often came from peasant background. These hierarchies were produced because the people who were consultants before the revolution, they remained in that high status in the same hospital often, uh, or in the same, you know, professional organization after the revolution. Of course, many were repressed, but we're still seeing these patterns of social reproduction within professions, okay? In the middle, you see um, another route. This, you see an image that sort of illustrates another route to reproduction, and that I call museum society. So the archeologist Vera Goldstein very much embodied that route because she was one of those people who, to, who were very discreetly reproducing the social networks and even civil society and public sphere of the past in museums, provincial art galleries, archeological societies. They often quietly waited out the, all the worst of the repressions because they moved to these quiet provincial havens, but they also in that way reproduced the human capital. They, they preserved the cultural relics of the past. And this um, photographic image in the, in the center is actually from an archive. We know what those people were up to because the Bolsheviks was, were spying on them. They were sending informers into these groups and they were saying, they were talking about how insular they were and how they were all you know, merchants and nobles and they were all sort of stewing in their own juices, et cetera, et cetera. And on the very left, you see an image that that embodies and that, that illustrates the kind of the third, what I call pop-up brigade route to social persistence. That is the Olinka, what Olinka Kanawalovs were doing, along with people from the um, organization man and museum society. They were all engaged in campaigns of done with illiteracy, et cetera, that the Bolsheviks were, uh, were, were, were advancing. And of course the Bolsheviks were very keen to develop society, but who was there, who were going to be the, the advancers and the developers? It was going to be, of course, the old bourgeoisie in a country that was overwhelmingly illiterate. And when I say the old bourgeoisie, I mean the 
uh, these educated estates that became the new professionals and, and the new entrepreneurs before uh, the revolution. And the fact that they were transitioning into professional modernity was already evident before the revolution. If you read the letters from that Niklutian merchant family, we find um, an obsession with education and služba. The word služba means service. To serve means to work in a white collar occupation. And we find that they were obsessed with that before the revolution and thereafter. They were not just entrepreneurs, they were also they wanted to become engineers, scientists, medics, um, teachers, etc. So we see that kind of those kinds of values and obsession with with education. But what we also find, and that is something that I was very excited to to learn about, and it turns out an, an, another historian has um, come across similar materials and wrote a fantastic book about this at the height of Stalinism, when Soviet Russia, actually already in the 19, late 1920s, they were depleting the gold fund. They realized, and probably like Russia now, they were desperate to, to find alternative sources to, for the economy to keep going. So what they did was on the one hand, their policies resulted in famine, social uh, and economic ruin and collapse. And they were also repressing the bourgeoisie. On the other hand, they were encouraging that same bourgeoisie to get their relatives who had emigrated to America or Europe to send them remittances and currency infusions because they uh, that way they could they, they could get access to foreign currency. And these kinds of infusions that were targeting the that were received by merchant and other wealthy families or the families of ethnic groups who had left before the revolution, you know, Jewish groups or the German ethnic Germans who were um, big community on the Volga. It's, they, these kind of remittances, they were important for me, not so much because of the economic underpinnings of wealth, but more from the point of view of exposure to the outside world. It's important for us to think about this now when we when we uh, consider Russia in the last couple of weeks, how it's becoming more and more insular from information, um, exposure to various sources of information, how the population is being starved of those sources. And imagine in Stalin's Russia, people had exposure to outside information because they were getting letters and packages from their relatives abroad. And Stalin furthermore encouraged that. So we have these relatively privileged groups who continue to have access to information about the outside world. And we know from the literature on remittances and um, development now in the 21st century, this is extremely important from the point of view of engendering particular values. Well, one might say, well, these are appear to be trivial amounts. And indeed, when I looked at how much they were getting, it's about 10 or $30 per, per infusion. But when you, um, when you calculate that and, 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 and uh, um, use a kind of electronic currency converter, which I, I discovered, to see what the modern day value is, it's actually non-trivial amounts. $30 in, in that period, let's say in the 1920s, 1930s, uh, it, um, was more than $437 um, as of in, in 1921, which is more than and far more now, after ruble has collapsed in the last couple of weeks, far more than the 
equivalent of the state pension that pensioners get now. So Constantine's mother, Anastasia, remember that image I showed you? Um, in a, just a matter of a few years, she received an equivalent of over 26,000 United States dollars. In, 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 in which which is non-trivial. And of course, this money didn't allow people to enjoy that same kind of middle-class lifestyle they enjoyed before the revolution of picnics, as you see in these images, horse rides, you know, beach uh, outings, etc. It enabled them to survive. Let's not forget that we're talking about famines, you know, whether in Russia or Ukraine that were decimating populations, starvation, mass economic deprivation. So we're, to we're talking about survival as indeed ability to keep up with the values of the past. Let's also not forget that education wasn't free in, in Soviet Russia for quite some time. People had to pay fees to send their children to school. And so all those things were important for keeping the, um, the human capital alive and, and the kind of values and a certain semblance of a lifestyle from the past. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Why should we care about this middle class reproduction on the, of the or the bourgeoisie? Those of you who are not familiar with the political science literature on this, there's a very vast um, scholarship and set of studies about the importance of the middle class as, as, as a force for democracy, the various channels, and also the bourgeoisie is prominently associated with um, a desire for a representative democracy and, um, and, and also as is, is, is a kind of group uh, that, that, that is endowed with superior human capital and hence ability to discern between um, different types of information, um, etc. And, and, and so this is something that um, enables us arguably to link the bourgeoisie of, of the past, which I um, discussed with reference to the estates with post-communist democratic development and, and processes um, in Russia. The problem that, that arises is how do we disentangle what the Bolsheviks did? Because I'm not denying that they were also developing and modernizing different areas of Russia. How do we disentangle this old bourgeoisie from the so-called new middle class that they were trying to rapidly uh, fabricating? So we can do that by looking at uh, using census and other statistical data, which is um, what I did. And on these maps, you see just illustratively distribution of of Mishani and noble um, that uh, nobility in different regions of Russia. So, for instance, on the right we see that nobles were not just concentrated in Saint Petersburg around Moscow; they were scattered throughout the Far East and even in southern regions. Not least because they were often exiled there, or as indeed that on the on the right we see the image of these Polish uh, impoverished nobles, the Polish. Um, aristocratic groups were a big um, community in, 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 for instance, in the Volga area and in Siberia. Many were exiled because of their revolutionary um, freedom fighting activities. 
And on the left, we see the image of Mishani fa family. So in the 1920s, this is the kind of face of the map you see on, on the left, which also shows that Mishani were unevenly distributed. What does that, why, do, why is that important? The kind of spatial heterogeneity in the distribution of these estates. It's important because, as I will show in the subsequent slides, th this is um, something that we could link to different um, developmental and political processes in Russian regions now, which in turn feed into broader political outcomes, support for Putin or challenge to Putin. One might, of course, say, and that's the most obvious argument that comes to mind, that, well, the bourgeoisie was decimated, not least because of the massive machinery of repression. People were sent at random to different faraway reaches of the empire. They were sent, uh, entire groups were decimated or exiled or deported. That is an important part of the story. What my analysis also shows, and if we look at this map, is that most people actually prefer to remain in their place of birth. Most people wanted to be close to their ancestral village. So this is map, uh, this map I produced based on essays of genealogical essays of um, young people in the region of Samara and we traced together with some colleagues, uh, the population movements of their sort of ancestors through the 20th century. What we find, and if you look at the cluster of circles in the center, that's the region of Samara and other Volga regions. Where most people actually stayed or traveled within these neighboring regions or the same region. Some were exiled, as you see the uh, to the far east, as you see the sort of one, some of the lines, or indeed lines pointing to the west is those who were servicemen in, in the Second World War. But the vast majority of people, um, and that's also confirmed by sociological surveys of, of Russians now, and indeed we know from studies elsewhere, most people are fairly conservative in terms of how far they want to move away from their families. And we're seeing, of course, this, you know, in Ukraine now, how many, how powerfully Ukrainian people feel about their their country and how they feel insulted if they're presented with this um you know conversations about how um you know they should they, they, they you know they, they 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 might be sort of moving out moving out en masse most people have deep deep attachments to their to their native um, ancestral uh, lands um, I have a couple of um, more slides I wanted to show you, which sort of summarize some of the uh, kind of arguments that I'm making. And this is a, a graph from the paper that I referred to, um, American Political Science Review with, Ameri with Alexander Liebman, that, that demonstrates the causal mechanism. So what we're showing is that, in this case with reference to Mishani, which is after peasants, the largest group, more than 10% of the population, that the reason why we consider them as the proto-bourgeoisie also in a democratic sense is because they had both human capital and entrepreneurial values. And the Soviet state used these people to advance their modernization agenda. Um, but also they adapted well to Soviet rule because they became professionals and many in the Soviet period, because of the entrepreneurial values they had also went into kind of autonomous professions or indeed the private sector. 
And these sort of areas enable individuals in Russia now to navigate away from state pressures that force people to support the Putin regime. So I was careful to say in the beginning of my talk, it's not a story of political culture, you know, that kind of stuff that's sort of being discredited um, in earlier literature. It's really a story of inequality on the opportunities and possibilities people that, that people have to navigate away from, uh, from state pressures. But these possibilities are also about human capital. So this, uh, these two graphs are very important. If you look at, um, at the left one, you see how Statistics like university degrees, which are often used by in present-day survey research, are pretty much meaningless as an indicator of support for Putin, as indeed um, as an indicator of a predictor of political freedoms, and in this case, press freedom. And this is, although this is from 1999, these data, they're still important because press freedom is, is regional indices of how much of how much information people get. It's very important now. Think about you know, the information blockade now in Putin's Russia, but some regions might still have more islands of sort of independent press. And, um, and we see that having educated people doesn't really, in a region, doesn't really predict very well the, uh, how much press freedom will be in that region. But having a large share of Mishani before the revolution does. And, and so if you look at the right, you see that it's a kind of better predictor of the kind of political outcomes that we see, demand for information and supply of more plural information. And, um, and this, so this is really a story about regional inequalities that take us back to divisions in the imperial society uh, that were ne never really disappeared. And so these are, uh, this is some text from a Russian so uh, sociologist, Anatoly Vishnevsky, who demonstrates that in 1990, that is a year before the Soviet Union collapsed, Soviet Union had high levels for that time urbanization, roughly 66%, but only 15 to 17% of urban people had been born in the city. And the rest were sort of migrants from rural areas. So in other words, you have this kind of new urbanites. Um, and, um, you know, I, I showed an image earlier of sort of peasant influx into cities. And that's a process very different from organic and gradual absorption of urban, of, of the kind of rural society by the urban society. This was very different in the Soviet period and very similar to other rapidly modernizing contexts like India or China. There's some great scholarship written on that. There's an American scholar, Bryn Rosenfeld, who writes about these sort of new middle class and the kind of public sector dependencies that they uh, engender. So Vishnevsky very uh, poignantly writes that by the time of the Soviet Union's collapse, one could not contend that Soviet society became a solidly and overwhelmingly urban society. USSR citizens in their majority remained urbanites in the first generation, half to three quarters comprised of urbanites and half or a quarter of peasants. They bear bearing the stamp of transient status of marginality. To a certain extent, this stamp will be inherited by their children. So this kind of marginalization of large chunks of society is socially reproduced. And it's very important for us to consider when we think about social divisions in, in Russia now. So my book aims to kind of make a contribution to 
a very rich area of uh, literature that takes history seriously now. There's a big strand of theorizing and rich empirical work in across the social sciences. But I also take historiography seriously. I urge us and encourage us to rethink Soviet era historical paradigms and put them in the particular context in which people, scholars were writing. That was the time when a lot of the progressives in the West embraced communism as this whole new dawn, new era, as something progressive and as something that, you know, for whom Tsarist Russia was the past and old news. And they didn't write very much about it. And what they wrote was kind of ideologically colored in, in many um, different uh, ways. But I also bring in sociology. Uh, my account is very sociological in, in some ways because it, it, it highlights the importance of social structure and how we think about divisions that plague, continue to plague consensus around sort of issues questions like democracy, liberalism in Russia now. So I started with these images of present day Russia and I wanted to end uh, with them. So on the one image, you see the cheerleaders for Putin. These might be people who don't necessarily believe in, in the regime. They might be public sector employees who have no other choice. They're working on really measly salaries and their uh, employer tells them, if you don't go to these cheerleading protests, you will lose your job. Right. Or they might be true believers because they have not had the same kind of education reproduced within families that would in, that would encourage scrutiny and questioning of uh, kind of official information. But we also see on the image to the right, the policemen beating up protesters. What we all don't ask, and I think we should, is um, who are these people hiding behind these uniforms, right? I want to see the poor, what I see is not the army or the police as an institution. I see the poor boy from a village. And just like I see when I see those um, really sad and heartbreaking images of captured soldiers in Ukraine, and I see their mom in the village crying saying, where is my boy? I see deprivation. And we don't think of deprivation as something that is kind of hiding inside these people with the batons. For them, it's like they think they're knight in shining armor. They might have had miserable lives uh, of underprivileged. And this underprivileged existence and status takes goes all the way to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union never leveled society. What it did is trapped peasants in collective farms, took away their passports, and then didn't allow them to move into cities until the 1950s. So we have this transience and marginality that is being reproduced in Russian society. And unfortunately, we don't think about these social divisions when we consider why do we observe this apparent massive swell of support for Putin and a small minority, which remains just as small as it was, you know, in those public sphere of Imperial Russia that I just des described earlier, comprised of mostly privileged groups who are in elite autonomous professions, who have the capacity to emigrate, leave their country, who speak foreign languages, who are descendants of the, you know, merchants, Mishani, and indeed aristocrats, and who are indeed uh, uh, professors sometimes now in Western universities, 
giving this talk. So these are the kind of divisions that we really, really should consider when we try to understand sources of support for the Putin regime or for democracy um, and um, or authoritarian resilience in, in, in Russia. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much for your attention and I'll open it up to Q&A. Oh, well, it was a very, uh, well, a sweeping presentation, sweeping across the, a century of history, um, demonstrating fascinating insights. But, you know, as a historian, uh, I, I wonder, uh, uh, Tomila, and, you know, I'm abusing my privilege before turning to, to other questions. They're all good questions. Um, you speak about one minority of Mishani, and you sort of assume that they hold the potential for Russian democracy at some point. But there is a majority, it seems, that uh, re have recurring preference for something else, not democracy, for authoritarianism, for a strong state, for what Putin calls sovereignty today. And my, my question would be, what, were the, what was the relationship between these two groups? Uh, I, from my own uh, historical research about an important Russian intellectual, Dmitry Lihachov, uh, I learned when he went uh, as a student after graduating from a very, very good elite school in, in, in former St. Petersburg, he went to a uh, former St. Petersburg University and he discovered that students and professors there were already divided into two groups. That was 1925. Uh, In one group, they called each other uh, Mr., Miss, Mrs. In, in another group, they called each other comrades. And those groups usually did not mingle. They were an antagonistic uh, relationship. So can you explain to us what happened across the decades of Soviet history uh, between these groups? Did this antagonism survive? Was there osmosis some, of some kind? Also, I cannot help resisting. You mentioned elite. This word elite uh, is used and abused so much. Um, when I grew up in, this, uh, in the late Soviet Russia, we still knew who real elites were. And we were there were still former people, so-called or people from the old regime, who had the gift of different education, better education from the Soviet education. So they were unspoken, unquestionable elite for all of us who grew up. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, the group, a new ruling class emerged that appropriated this notion of elites. And now we have to call them elites who rule Russia today. So please, can you talk about this? And the second question, very briefly, you should touch on values. You, you say it's not only about education, it's about continuation and reproduction of values. For me, it's especially important because, you know, a, a remarkable erudites can exist without values or with very, very different values. What have, would you comment on the role of religion? In the census of 1937, you mentioned 55 million people said they were believers. 56% of the entire uh, you know, participation in the census. Can you comment on the role of religion and, and values? 
Thank you. These are such big, complex questions. Thank you, Vlad, for raising them. Oh, if I understand your first question correctly, these different groups at the university, are you talking about intellectuals who embraced Marxism versus those who didn't? Is that what you're talking about? Are you talking about different estates? No, those uh, who, who came from your kind of families uh, who were all the leads, Omishani. They called each other Mr., Mrs., and so on and so forth. Those who were promoted and used social lifts opened by the Bolshevik revolution and the Bolshevik regime called each other comrades. There were some who adopted, who adopted Marxist beliefs, but most of them were from peasants and workers, and they tried to climb the same stairs of higher education with great difficulty. Mm-hmm. So, so exactly. So in my book, I, I, I um, or I try to, and, and also in other papers that I did, I try to um, demonstrate, and again, this is all probabilistic patterns, right? Of course, there were a myriad of exceptions, there were intermarriages, there were different routes and trajectories. But generally, the um, many aristocrats, and we know that actually from another source, which I discovered, well, really properly analyzed only after my book was published and for a different project. I'm now looking at the Harvard, um, you might have heard of it, the Harvard um, project on Soviet social history, when in the 1950s, in the early 1950s, a massive wave of refugees, you know, it was very similar to what is happening now, moved after the war, they found themselves in the West. And scholars at Harvard found this, this is a perpetuous opportunity to interview these people, find out about the Soviet Union. And what this project and the analysts at Harvard at the time were not concerned about the states, but what they found was really interesting, large transcript that show us how many aristocrats gravitated towards medicine, medical profession, because it was apolitical, because they found it abhorrent to join the communist party. Whereas many of the people, the peasant sort of route to social mobility, you know, and we know that from Brezhnev, you know, Gorbachev, these were like people from the rural kind of rural, social stratum that found it easier to climb up the social ladder because they didn't have the trappings of professional sort of pedigree or resources that people like perhaps Lihachov had who came from a merchant family where there was significant investment in education before the revolution. This is what I find with merchants. They attended very prestigious fee-paying schools that prepared them for the lives of modern professionals. So when Stalinist, especially during Stalinism, you know, when, um, when um, you know, ideology permeated everything and you could be arrested and shot, it was safer for you to be a professional where there's less Marxist-Leninist dogma and medicine was one such profession. So different people channeled themselves into different roots, um, you know, um, of, um, of, of social mobility. What I also find is that, you know, people of all kinds of groups joined the Communist Party, but not all the, those who did join the Communist Party that had a kind of socializing effect on them and they became more pro-regime than those who just decided to stay away from that route. And many scientists didn't join uh, the Communist Party. So there are diff- these are different, uh, 
complex processes that I only partially deal with. I will be in my future work as well. Religion is extremely important. We control for religion. Old believers, you know, this merchant archive, they're old believers. Many of you don't know, uh, this is a this is a kind of, there was a schism in, in, in Russian sort of Orthodox church and that goes back centuries. And old believers, they were habitually, they preserved manuscripts, they were very, they had a strong emphasis on education and they were very entrepreneurial. Max Weber even wrote about them as a sort of, are they like the, you know, do they embody the Protestant spirit kind of thing? They were, and I think this Niklutian archive very much, is very, very much typifies what the values were of, of this particular religious group. My own ancestors are Moroccans, the so-called milk drinkers. It's a quasi-Protestant sect in Russia. So they were also different from the uh, the, the Orthodox, um, Russian Orthodox, um, and, and one could say with values, etc. So in our analysis, we control for religion and we still find that the state matters. But I'm not denying that religious religious values are unimportant. In fact, you know, they're, they're an important part of the story. It's just that religion has been analyzed in the literature and religious values, but the state hasn't when it comes to the Soviet and post-Soviet period. So I'll stop there. Perhaps maybe we could um, open up to the questions from the audience as well. Yes, there are questions, so let them, let me read them in the order they were received. Uh, Robert Ong asks from Toronto, Canada, um, how can you apply the themes of the book to how Russia could turn out politically and socially in a post-Putin era? I like the question. Thank you. I, I very much actually, thank you for the question. I very much agree with Vlad Zubok's interpretation of the optimistic message. The optimistic message I have is that these... Um, the kind of the impulse for civil society, for the resources and the values that support a kind of particular pub, active public sphere, politically open society, civil society, they never disappeared even under communism. They were there, they, they sort of, were unseen and invisible. So I have this museum society, you know, there were people doing sort of quasi civic activities. There were dissident movements. None of this really disappeared. It was there, it was just held under the lid. And of course, when political openings happen, these groups come to the surface. And even now in Russia, I analyzed protest and civil society over the last uh, 20 years. We know that when political repression increases, people simply disappear into politically safe forms of activism. They uh, work on issues of environmental preservation, cultural preservation, etc. But meanwhile, they're keeping alive the skills and the networks and resources that, that are very important for reproduction of civil society. So my message is very optimistic. It's, it's you know, and I'm thinking, I'm t already telling my son who's 10 years old that when you grow up, you will be living and you will be contributing to the rebirth of democratic Russia. Keep learning the Russian language because I think, you know, there are these, there is a huge potential. And we see that with the brave uh, uh, woman, Marina Avshanik of a single woman act, you know, on, on TV against the war, against lies that people. So there are, 
there are these islands, even now with a massive exodus of people, of intelligentsia, really, we're talking about the next big exodus of professionals, intellectuals, intelligentsia, of the kind that we observed several waves in the 20th century. Even with that exodus, I think there will be impulse to return when things politics change, but also there are always people who stay uh, for the simple reason that we, we, we love our country. We, are, we, we have attachments. We want to see it prosper and, uh, and democratic. Okay, uh, thank you. The next question from Helen Haxel um, about literature, lit literary representation of bourgeoisie. Before the revolution, it appeared quite prevalent that there was some kind of malaise. The bourgeoisie was associated with, with Russia's malaise, maybe cultural, I don't know. Uh, do you think there was a shift in this literary approach post-revolution? Did you? Uh, so, so good question. Um, are you talking about, uh, if you're talking about Dostoevsky, for me, for instance, these big grades are actually um, and a really important source of information and almost ethnographic material on the estates. Dostoevsky wrote about Mishani. You know, a lot of these intellectuals, by the way, portrayed these urban groups uh, almost exclusively in a derogative sense. But think of Chekhov, who was Mishanin. You know, he wrote, he was a Mishanin, I'm a Mishanin when he applied to Moscow University. And his sister was a Mishanka. So Chekhov, the, the famous playwright and doctor, by, you know, by, by, by training, um, so these people, they, they were simply deriding the kind of petty bourgeois milieus. And in Chekhov's case actually wasn't petty bourgeois. His father was a merchant who, as often happened with merchant families, he lost his uh, guild certificate. If you, can't, if you can't pay these fees to uphold your merchant guild status, you, you're kind of relegated to the status of Mishani. So there was a kind of big social, you know, perhaps a chip on the shoulder, you know, that they had. And so the, then these intellectuals would proceed to deride these um, ostensibly kitsch and, uh, you know, tasteless milieus of their upbringing. But ultimately they embody the kind of transition from Mishanstvo merchantry into the professional class. So Russian literature, great. Yes, maybe, you know, malaise of capitalism. We find that very much um, in Dostoevsky's work, um, but also the, uh, the kind of um, urban modernity uh, where these different groups mix, but they're also often overwhelmingly of the, um, the kind of, um, you know, what I call educated estates, you know, um, they're the kind of urban bourgeoisie, whether petty or kind of more of a more, more, more wealthy kind. All right, thank you. Well, the next question is about, uh, from Adrian Lee, alumni of Bangor University. What was the role of the Jewish community during the period of time? And that's, you know, a great question. Also the priority of learning, the priority of culture and education, this community was very high. The Jewish community was extremely important. So I write on, on um, very early on in the book that um, religion is, a very important part of how we understand the who became which estate. 
So Jewish people, Jewish community were historically persecuted. Certain rural uh, areas or occupations were off limits. They were also often prohibited from, um, you know, mobility in a geographical sense was difficult for them. And often, so for them, uh, acquiring the, the status of, for instance, honorary citizen through entrepreneurship, um, which was a kind of very prestigious category of urban estates, it was very important to get away from that stigma and to get away from some of the limitations of that the Tsarist Russia placed on them. And of course, add to that habitual emphasis on learning, just like the German populations, uh, they, 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 you know, in, in, in gymnasia, for instance, in Samara region, Samara had a very thriving and vibrant Jewish community. And actually Samara was one of those tolerant regions that, you know, it takes pride in the fact that ostensibly it didn't have a single pogrom during the, the, the wave of pogroms in the early um, uh, 20th uh, century that uh, swept some of the regions of Russia. Samara was tolerant towards Jews because Jews were very prominent in kind of merchant philanthropy. Uh, there was a big synagogue, you know, they ran different charitable organizations, and they were also successful professionals. And I have some interesting dynastic examples in my book of uh, Dr. Greenberg, who was the um, the Jewish doctor who came from a dynasty of uh, Jewish doctors before the revolution. They continued to be successful dynastic doctors after the revolution. And uh, Dr. Greenberg treated um, Shostakovich, you know, the famous composer who came to perform his Leningrad symphony in Samara during the war. Dr. Greenberg treated his son because Dr. Green Greenberg was so famous from before the revolution. And in, interestingly, intelligentsia like Shostakovich, they often opted for their kids to be treated by these, you know, prominent doctors from before the revolution. So um, yes, the, the religion is important because it channeled, um, some groups had incentives to acquire these, to move into these urban estates. Uh, or habitually were not in kind of rural occupations. And um, certainly um, I'm thinking old believers as well, many became merchants because they were so entrepreneurial and wealth uh, and so wealthy that enabled them to kind of transition in that state. All right, um, the next question uh, from Rosa Vogan, I apologize if I mispronounced. I would like to know if you explore how the old middle class that has never emigrated from Soviet Russia moved to leading positions and in their integration into the high levels of the Soviet state. So if I understand correctly, this is, this is a story of causal mechanisms, right? So how did they move into the high levels? And that's a story of kind of professionalization that we observed already before the revolution when in the Niklutian family, for instance, where Constantine was a, um, uh, came from a family of some of the wealthiest merchants in that region. So this was a region that was likened to Chicago 
it was like the Chicago and the Volga, it was called, because it was so prominent in grain trade. And there were these magnates who, I don't want to call them the oligarchs of yesteryear, because they were not oligarchs of the kind, like Dirty Money, London Grad, that we think of now, you know, that's now in the news. No, they were wealthy people who acquired wealth through entrepreneurship and but even before the revolution, they wanted their kids to study engineering in St. Petersburg at the Polytechnic University Institute or medicine. And even before the revolution, women, aristocrats and merchants were sending their daughters to elite secondary schools. And these, these um, groups who were politically not very targeted by repressions compared to high profile aristocrats, for instance, they um, quietly and discreetly reproduced their status as teachers, as doctors in provincial medical clinics. And that's how they kind of transitioned into, and into the Soviet middle class. And also they taught their children the values of higher education, exposure to you know, all kinds of cultural capital type um, um, you know, activities that engender cultural capital. You know, they, they did home tutoring, foreign languages, etc. I very much unpack in the book um, in, in some detail these processes of sort of familial intergenerational transmission of human and cultural capital. There's another question that if you put a, a different cap of your specialization in Russian protest, um, how would you comment on the fact that the majority of the current anti-war protesters seems to be young females, according to many pictures and videos? So I gave a couple of BBC interviews about this, uh, um, you know, j just, just recently. I think um, women have always actually played a very important role in, uh, you know, as I show in my book, even in Imperial Russia, they were, they were establishing you know, higher educational institutions, well, not higher, but secondary schools they were setting up. And they were also very important in kind of various forms of civil society and, and activism. We, of course, we saw in Belarus, women assumed a central role for the simple reason that, uh, you know, in, 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 you know, some of the leaders in the Belarus protests, you know, there, uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, her husband was, was um, arrested and prevented from, you know, becoming, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, a leader um, in, 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 you know, uh, in, in Belarus. And, and so we have these um, also the 21st century, you know, kind of women, 20th, late 20th century empowerment of women. I think these are, these are important factors, but we shouldn't forget that um, women were always active, even in the dissident movement. There is a, there is a, a funny quote from, uh, uh, I believe it is um, um, Stephen Cohen, who's um, a late uh, historian, uh, who wrote that uh, women were very active in the dissident movement. They typed, uh, you know, these diff dissident uh, literature, and they also kept their men from drinking too much. So I liked that that a bit, but but yes, um, now perhaps there's also a sense. And by the way, this is all very important. Okay, um, in in the Stalin, there is now a, a, a very strong evidence that repressions did not affect women nearly as badly as they did men. Overwhelmingly, the people who were shot 
um, were in, in the kind of the, 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 the great terror were, were men. Women were often spared the harshest of repressions. And I think perhaps we're also seeing that perhaps there is a kind of sense that uh, they, they are kind of maybe less vulnerable. Not sure if, you know, I think this, we have to analyze that certainly more closely, but even in the most repression re regimes like Stalin's, there was a gender imbalance that favored women incidentally in terms of the brutality of repressions. So maybe that also kind of accounts for how free they feel to sort of express their opposition to the regime. We rapidly approaching the end of the program, but uh, the last question I want to ask by, you know, Martin Franzman asks is what is happening in Russia today? What do you think will happen to your Mishani in the short or medium term? And I cannot resist adding, what about their resilience? What about, you know, would Putin treat men and women fairly this time? That's another <laughs> tough, tough question. So the descendants of Mishani, uh, probabilistically speaking, are, you know, many of them and descendants of merchants as well, many of them are in more status professions. And I, I realize I didn't answer your question about elites, but very good point that, you know, it's a very fraught term. Maybe I should kind of, we should ditch it, uh, stop using it altogether because, you know, or, or, or unpack it, you know, within the kind of historical context specifically in which it is uh, used. But, um, uh, but yes, the middle class in Russia, as I said, there's the two, two varieties. There's the old and the new to put it in a stylized ways. Uh, many intelligentsia, many professionals are moving, but that doesn't mean that this exodus is going to actually stop a lot of these positive and optimistic processes that I talk about in my book. You know, there's still brave people who are trying to run media, you know, TV rain has been closed. These guys are now running YouTube channels. And I say guys, it's actually women like Lubov Sabol, you know, another many prominent with Kira Yarmish, Navalny activists. They're creating YouTube platforms that, so they're all sort of very morphing into different alternative spaces. And that's very clever. And, you know, they're adaptive, they're resilient, and hopefully that gives us all, leaves us with an optimistic message of life after Putin. Well, on this hopeful note, uh, with great regret, because we should, you know, I wish we could continue more. I'm closing this program and I want to congratulate Professor Tomila Lankin again with this remarkable book. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you for uh, your great questions and Vlad for chairing and for a generous introduction. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.